a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to a new season of War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Oliker, speaking to you from Brussels. My co-host, Alyssa Jobson, cannot join this week, but she is eager to be back for upcoming episodes. It's been a busy summer, uh, even if we haven't been podcasting, and uh, we thought we would catch you up with the first episode of the season by talking about what has happened in the South Caucasus and the unfolding humanitarian crisis in the region. Many people here, they are becoming refugee already third time in their life. On September 19th of this year, Azerbaijan launched a military operation in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh. Nagorno-Karabakh was a majority ethnic Armenian populated region, legally within Azerbaijan's borders, but which had been de facto self-governing for three decades. This military action, which came two years after Baku regained control of part of the enclave and seven regions surrounding it in a six-week war, uh, surprised no one. Neither Armenia nor Russian peacekeepers stationed in Karabakh took action to counter the Azerbaijani advance, and the de facto authorities of Nagorno-Karabakh surrendered within a day. A week later, on 28 September, those de facto authorities announced that their self-declared government would cease to exist. This marked a major victory for Baku, which had long sought to reintegrate Karabakh. But in the lead-up to its military action and since, the humanitarian situation in the region has become dire. Prior to moving in troops, Baku had for months blockaded the only route connecting the enclave with Armenia, causing significant shortages of food and medicine. Now, over 100,000 people, probably more than 80% of what had been the enclave's population, have fled to Armenia, which is scrambling to absorb them. Responding to this humanitarian crisis is now urgent, but other challenges also loom. While fighting in Karabakh has subsided, the situation along the Armenia-Azerbaijan border remains fragile, and many fear Baku might press its advantage in light of its latest military success. In the past, efforts by Russia, the EU, and the European Union to mediate a peace deal between Armenia and Azerbaijan have struggled to gain traction. Now, with Russia's role fundamentally changed, the future is, to say the least, uncertain. talk about all of this, I am delighted to welcome back Alessia Vartanian and Zawar Shariev, Crisis Group's analysts for the South Caucasus region. Both have over a decade each of experience in researching this conflict specifically and the region as a whole, and they are Crisis Group's brain trust on this volatile situation. Alessia Zawar, welcome back to War and Peace. It's nice to be back. Thank you, Olya. Thank you. Zawar, I'll start with you. Why do you think Azerbaijan decided to attack when it did? And relatedly, uh, is there any way any of this could have been prevented? Um, As we know that we uh, call the 2020 war is an unpreventable war for the circumstances that actually happened before that. But I think this was a preventable war, what happened, because, I mean, there were 
For many months, there was a discussion and there was a demand that uh, the only solution of this crisis situation is the direct talk between Azerbaijan and the de facto officials uh, from Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, however, this never happened for various reasons. So Baku made clear that actually this is a situation that is not going to tolerate it. And uh, I would like to say that actually everything suggested that there will be a military escalation. Uh, so for a month ago, and this was evidence since Azerbaijan frequently pointed out that there is a uh, no negotiation, and they also make clear that disarmament of the region is a top priority, and uh, and should, it should be part of the talks with local Armenians. And so that's why what happened is not surprising, but, but consequences are devastating. Almost everyone left, and now it's time to consider whether uh, the people will return and what kind of international help is needed. Alisa, what has been the response in Armenia to these events so far? When Armenia found itself handcuffed uh, during its military operation, uh, with where Azerbaijani troops stationed not only at the Nagorno-Karabakh front line, but also at the Armenian-Azerbaijani border, and uh, the Armenian officials, uh, they told me that they were perfectly aware that the moment Armenia tries to do anything during this military operation, uh, the violence and could spread uh, to Armenia proper. And our previous research showed that Armenia does not really have uh, much resource to, re- to defend itself. So in a way, what Armenia could uh, do um, is... Uh, to stand by and watch uh, the whole situation. And now it finds itself uh, uh, struggling to um, to respond to this inflow of, uh, of people. Uh, it will have to accommodate them uh, with the winter coming. And then also in the years to come to find a way to integrate them. So what kind of help, uh, Alessa, does Yerevan need? Can uh, outside actors provide support to make this management of a refugee crisis uh, less less onerous? Almost every day we learn about a new country that is donating either financial support or they are about to send a humanitarian aid. Uh, this is all very promising, but we also need to, uh, to remember this sort of support, it, uh, it has to last for many more months and maybe even years to properly integrate people, to settle them in Armenia, to support them so that they find jobs, uh, they uh, become part of the society. This is not something that Armenia has done properly in the past when uh, refugees came either from Azerbaijan or Nagorno-Karabakh or when Armenia had to face its own crisis situation, like for example last year. In many cases, the government did a poor job, in fact. Uh, showing this uh, response and also doing this follow-up uh, that has to to come um, in, in the coming months. So um, will Armenia be giving these people citizenship? Uh, will it be giving them benefits? Do we know? The Armenian government has already started providing some cash uh, so that people can uh, uh, purchase the things that they need. Uh, they already receive many of them. They receive food or some very basic medication, some stuff that they need to take care of themselves. But we know that uh, some of these people, they may have special needs. Like, for example, they need a medication that is not really part of the package uh, or they have uh, a need to buy 
diapers, you know, or some other uh, stuff that is uh, kind of more personal. So the Armenian government has started providing with sort of cash support. Uh, uh, I also understand that there are some areas where some rehabilitation works have started. Probably these will be the places where with people uh, will live in groups. Mm, like settlements uh, of uh, of refugees from Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, but on, on top of that, of course, there will be a need to find a way to support those who will want to live uh, in, in the villages, have their own property, or maybe even come to Yerevan and rent apartments there. And it's not yet clear how that uh, will be handled. Um, and again, with uh, cash assistance, it's great, but this is just the first step. There will be a need for much longer walk uh, in order to support these people and then um, help them integrate in the Armenian society. But the plan is to integrate them and to make them Armenian citizens, or do we know? I think so. I think so. I mean, uh, you know, I I had a chance to speak to some people who I know from Nagorno-Karabakh, and none of them told me that uh, they had a plan uh, to go back. So this is more about either settling in Armenia or moving uh, to some other foreign country. But probably that moving will be happening not right away. Uh, people will be staying first in Armenia. So so we're the flip side of that. Uh, Baku has promised to protect ethnic Armenians who do stay in the region, although those are very small numbers, and any who do decide to return. Um, unlike those that Alessia has talked to, or perhaps people who change their minds later. So what can an Armenian who has stayed, an ethnic Armenian who has stayed, or one who returns to Karabakh in the future, expect uh, under Azerbaijani control? Uh, Is Baku doing anything to try to make uh, this region, make Azerbaijan seem more welcoming? It's a good question because uh, the only thing that we saw that Baku announced the establishment of a website where those wishing to live in the region can apply, so kind of reintegration, and also it reports that over 20 people have already applied. So they're letting people, just want to understand this, they're letting people who are from this region apply to live there? That's what they're doing? Yes, uh, this is a reintegration, the platform, so whoever would like to stay Mm -hmm. or return uh, can apply. So they already reported that over the 20 people have already applied. Uh, so also they have already uh, detailed some elements of integration. Uh, so essentially Baku is saying that population can have a role in the self-governance at the municipality level. Uh, they will have a right to study in Armenian language, similar to other minorities. They will also have a right to preserve their cultural heritage. And uh, also they could also join to the special representative office and integrate into the police forces. But also uh, we know that in Azerbaijan the municipality doesn't hold much power. Uh, so uh, so there is a pressing need for local government reform and everyone is speculating about this is going to happen. So uh, basically what Baku announced until now is just uh, uh, everyone knew beforehand that. Uh, so uh, so just a r- language rise, preservance of the cultural rights, but, but the question is that how is it going to be applied? 
So on paper, this is there, but how is it going to be applied? But also the other question is that we know that there was a discussion between Azerbaijan and the de facto officials. So three meetings happened, but after that, uh, this all stopped. So and how, how this, whether there will be any plan integration, who will be other side from uh, local Armenians? Everyone is left. So who will discuss these elements on details with Azerbaijan side? This is a big, big question that no one has an answer. And can people who apply to stay or return, they can be rejected in this application? They can be told that, no, you can't live here? This is an interesting question. I think a few days ago, I mean, the crash group has a discussion with some uh, officials in Baku, and uh, they say that whoever have lived in the region before the conflict started in the 1988, they can come back, they can leave. Uh, so this is the this most important question, but uh, the Baku's position is that uh, the whoever lived in Karabakh before the conflict, they can leave and they can return. So that's why this is this also excludes some people who actually lived in Karabakh in the last 30 years. So who are the people applying? They're uh, people who were living in Karabakh for the last 30 years or people who have family roots there from before 30 years ago? Or do we know? So far, Baku says that who, who has a, who had a family rules who lived in Karabakh, so they are applying. I, I mean, they are not making any distinction right now, and they never announced that whether. So they never announced these details uh, to public yet. Okay, so we're not really talking about ethnic Armenians who are staying or coming back. We're talking about Azerbaijanis who fled. No, no, we are talking about the ethnic Armenians who lived in the region before the conflict started. So their numbers were, were more than 150,000. But the question is that actually who will never return, who decides not to return, what will be their property rights, what they will be rights, so how they are going to be compensated. So this question, no one has an answer right now. That's a huge question. I mean, that's always a question in any displacement crisis of what do you do with uh, property that's left behind, and it can become very complicated. Um, the other question I wanted to ask is what's happening with these former de facto officials who surrendered and dissolved their government? We heard that there had been some arrests. Uh, what What's going to happen to these people? Do we know? So uh, so we know that Azerbaijan is actually announced the, the amnesty, but uh, the amnesty in a strict terms, they say that they are not going to arrest anyone who actually laid down the arms, but it is not applied to the who was and still is in Azerbaijan wanted list. We know that before the, this military operation, Azerbaijani officials announced that they have uh, 400 people in their wanted list, which Baku accused them to involve the, uh, the, how to say, the first war, second war, and also other wrongdoings in the, during the war, which Baku called them the actions of war crimes. But so far, Baku uh, right now arrested uh, nine former de facto officials, uh, most of them the de facto leaders in, in Nagorno-Karabakh in the last uh, 20 years. What will happen to them? I think uh, what we hear in Baku is that they are going to be available court cases and there is a license in of them will uh, will be released or will give this amnesty is not going to apply to them. I see. Alessa, how does this play in Armenia? What are the attitudes in Armenia to these developments among both the refugees and uh, the government and folks and just Armenian citizens? 
Well, you know, uh, with uh, plans uh, for uh, so-called reintegration, they might look very nice on the paper, uh, but uh, when you apply it to the real life, they m might not really work. And uh, unfortunately, there are some examples, not just from this conflict, but some other conflicts, right? I mean, that when uh, a certain government uh, uh, prepares a program, uh, it looks beautiful, it's presented at international forums, but then uh, it has nothing close to, to get implemented. Uh, and, and get implemented not in terms that they don't want to do that, it's just there will be no people who will be making use of it. Um, I think in the short term, unfortunately, uh, there will be no interest really to get back to Nagorno-Karabakh and start living with a, uh, Azerbaijani rule. If we were um, opposite, then probably r people would not really rush away. Uh, and then uh, it was really very... Um, it was a huge panic, right? I mean, in Nagorno-Karabakh and people were trying to leave as soon as possible exactly because they were terrified of this very prospect of, uh, for example, Azerbaijani police uh, uh, entering their uh, villages and towns or seeing Azerbaijani military. There were very bad uh, cases in the past uh, um, when some uh, torture took place, people got killed, and then some of that got filmed, even documented. We don't know really the results of these uh, investigations. So, I mean, why I'm saying that is uh, is that it will be very difficult to sell uh, this sort of reintegration program to those who now were doing nothing else but to pack and leave, you know. They were fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh. And then maybe that will be uh, several times more difficult than integrating with people in Armenia uh, in, in, at this particular moment. But again, I'm, you never say never. Yeah, there will be probably possibilities to discuss with issues um, in a year, in three years, in 10 years. Uh, people should re retain their right to return or at least visit uh, because uh, they have not just property there, but they also have... Uh, cemeteries, uh, right? I mean, they have uh, cathedrals. Maybe potentially there would be a possibility to start a discussion on some of these uh, measures that uh, will uh, support the confidence. You know, those who are more into official and kind of diplomatic processes, uh, including from Nagorno-Karabakh de facto officials, they were telling me that uh, if only we can get some sort of, you know, signal that there would be additional eyes on the ground. Uh, unfortunately, the Russian peacekeepers are not relevant anymore, you know, for the local population. They don't really trust them. They don't think that they, they are the ones who can stand and maybe not protect, but at least kind of generate some sort of feeling of safety. So about these peacekeepers, uh, Zawur, they did not uh, deter Azerbaijan from attacking. Russia's peacekeepers did not deter Azerbaijan from attacking. Um, Alessa says they have no role at all now, but they're still there, right? What are they doing? Uh, yes, they are still there, but also we see that uh, there are uh, two scenarios right now is in play. 
I think the one scenario that everyone is believing that they might live in a quite short time, even it could happen in the incoming days and weeks. Uh, the primary reason is that almost all ethnic Armenians have le left. That's who remained probably number less than the 50 individuals. So this, that's why the legitimacy of the Russian peacekeeping rely on the fact that there were people uh, they were protecting. But this was the element that made them to believe that they will stay more uh, after 2025. But Baku made that uh, it, it is not going to extend their mission. So also we see some signs that actually their departure, some observation posts that have been dismantled and uh, we know that they have a near to third observation post in areas populated by Armenians. So so the second scenario is that they might stay uh, until the end of their mandate, which some people in Baku calls is a transition period. Uh, so it's transition period that they will do jointly patrolling in the area. They will also would like to be part of the, if anyone will decide to return. So they will promise the safety. At the same time, it is also scenario that if it's going to happen, Baku would like to them to stay on this transition period because Baku doesn't want to see any international mission, uh, permit mission to come to the region. Um, Alicia. This is a different uh, role for Russia than I think Armenia had in mind. Uh, and Pashinyan, Armenia's leader, has been saying that his country made a mistake relying on Russia as its only strategic partner. What do you think? Is it over between Yerevan and Moscow? Or is there still cooperation to be had between these two countries? Well, you know, there have been frictions uh, for a number of years, uh, especially after the 2020 war when Armenia kept the hope that uh, Russia would come uh, and then help, and then it never happened. So mm, I would say that the problem, they have been there, but they came on surface, uh, especially during the last several months uh, when the Prime Minister uh, of uh, Armenia, he started openly criticizing and highlighting some of the problems with cooperation uh, with Russia. And then that has to do not only with Nagorno-Karabakh and the fact that the Russian peacekeeping mission there failed, but also with the fact that Russia has uh, its uh, own uh, commitments, right? I mean, they have special bilateral agreements that are about protecting each other. And when Azerbaijan started attacking Armenia last year, especially when it, uh, it, it happened uh, with escalation at the border, Russia did not really help. Russia says that uh, it is busy with Ukraine, but uh, the, the longer it goes, the, the less is uh, with desire in Armenia to continue believing that with us, the reason. Unfortunately, what happens is in Yerevan, uh, they have no trust to what Moscow says, and even more now they are... Uh, confident that uh, the Russian leadership uh, is looking for the regime change in Armenia, which is based on some of the statements that were made by the Russian senior leadership during the last uh, 10 days. So um, it's, it's not really clear whether it is the end, but uh, it's really very different uh, from all the past frictions that they have had before. Thank you. So, Zohar, Azerbaijan now controls all of its legal territory. So, but as, as Alesa just said, there have been clashes at the state borders before. Uh, what what are we worried about happening now? Explain why we're still concerned that there will be more conflict. 
Uh, I think uh, we are a bit aware of the sorts of the concern and perception of the threat, uh, especially in the West and international community. And, and recently, one uh, diplomat uh, told me that when you eat, your appetite increase. So this is the analogous to what may, might be happening, that Baku feel confident right now, took over the Karabakh, and it can continue the Armenian territory. This is how the Western countries are perceiving the situation. But I, I think the officials in Baku say that it is, is otherwise, so Azerbaijan doesn't have uh, any interest of the use of the force. But still, this is a prevalent issue. Uh, but I discount this scenario for several reasons. At least I might be wrong, but this is what I see. That first of all, we know that this is going to open the Pandora's box if Azerbaijan is going to, how to say, to take over any even small amount of the Armenian territory, which actually will force the lead the sanction and isolation. And no one is uh, in Baku is going to take such a risk. Second, uh, unlike what happened in Karabakh, uh, there will be no domestic support for military action uh, on Armenian territory because the public is sensitive to being labeled to this issue. Also, imagine the scenario leading to sanction and the first to suffer will be ordinary people. And the third is that regional confrontation risk. Uh, we know that this is uh, something that actually Iran announced is a red line and th they can make a retaliation and also which could also might draw to Turkey. So escalation, uh, this situation in a broader regional conflict. Uh, so still this is uncertain, but I believe that uh, this is the reason. But in order to elevate the such uncertainty, I believe issue concerning the use of the force and the threat of the force should be integral to the peace agreement. And uh, the, so it should be an obligation that from now on there will be no uh, use of the force. But I know that it is not going to defuse the potential risk, but at least it also might be calmed down, also uh, make Bako to oblige that not to use the force. Okay, so peace agreements, but mediation so far has not gotten us to peace agreements. Um, so or you think a peace agreement needs to commit everybody not to use force, that's certainly a start. Alessa, what else would need to be in a peace deal to make it sustainable? The most important thing right now is to have Azerbaijan back to the peace talks. Uh, we saw that uh, with military operation, it uh, happened against uh, the promises that Azerbaijan was giving, not just to Armenia, but also to the U.S. and the Euro European Union. And in fact, it happened uh, against the threats that were coming from, for example, from some U.S. Uh, officials who were saying that we would consider sanctions if you attack Nagorno-Karabakh. But we saw Azerbaijan doing that, and we saw also people fleeing uh, the region, and there is no really follow-up. That can, of course, be interpreted as, uh, okay, there will be a way to justify an attack at Armenia as well, or maybe even negotiate with Iran and then finding the way to have Iran on board as well uh, in terms of kind of, you know, with arrangements that uh, that consider the Armenian territory. Um, Sorry, who would negotiate with Iran? Azerbaijan. Okay, so this is the idea that Azerbaijan and Iran make a deal to conquer Armenia? Azerbaijan and Iran, they can agree on having Russians who will control the corridor, for example. Um, there are two key issues uh, uh, right now uh, that uh, are... Uh, still to be settled by Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, so one of them, it has to do with the border demarcation. Um, I know Armenia wants to see Azerbaijani troops out of its territory, the, the regions that are under the Azerbaijani uh, control. 
that uh, it, it started controlling during uh, with three years since the 2020 war in attacks at the border. Azerbaijan wants to take back the exclaves that are inside Armenia. There are some other issues related to the border demarcation. And the other issue, it has to do with the promise uh, that Armenia and Azerbaijan made uh, in terms of the usage of the transportation roads. This is something that they committed to uh, in their ceasefire statement in 2020. Uh, Azerbaijan wants to see one of these roads to have special arrangements with the Russian control. Armenia wants to, uh, to have at least some say over that road and also wants to see its borders open with Turkey and Azerbaijan. Uh, both of these issues, uh, they are interconnected and they are seen as a pretext for possible territorial claims that might be coming from Azerbaijan. So... With all of the difficulty that the U.S., the European Union, Russia had bringing these parties to the negotiating table before, what leverage does anybody have that would actually facilitate an agreement now? I think I'd like to pose this question to both of you, Zawar first, and then maybe Turkey, and then Adesa. Uh I think the key question is, uh, yes, resuming all the talks, I fully agree, but also, uh, so how and what kind of the key questions remain on the table, so to achieve the peace agreement, uh, and whether they, uh, as you asked, whether the international community or wh- who has uh, influence to this, uh, the talks. I, I mean, we know that Azbaku declined to go to the Granada to meet the, uh, the Armenian side, so they say that this format is an imbalance. Uh, they wanted to see the Turkey as a participant of these talks, other, and, and they rejected these talks. But Baku agreed about talks at the end of the October under the uh, EU mediation in Brussels again. So, I mean, still, I believe that the United States and the EU has a, some leverage and also influence to Baku in terms of this is a at least for Baku says that they have interest of signing with the peace agreement. And right now, the condition uh, of signing peace agreement, we are much more closer than we used to before. So they make point that is that most contentious issue was about the rights and security of Karabakh Armenians. And uh, so, uh, and this was a primary topic of discussion and central issue that uh, propelled things forward. And so that's why they see that right now uh, they are ready to agree some of the challenging questions. One is about this, uh, as Oleg mentioned, about this uh, delimitation and demarcation of borders. But what we hear that Baku doesn't see this issue as a part of a peace agreement. So they see that this should be out of the peace agreement. This, this should be part of the discussion under the commission of the border. Uh, but when it comes to, to connectivity, I believe this understanding of the connectivity uh, with mainland Azerbaijan and uh, with Nakhchivan exclave is sure this is, there is a demand, but also Baku sees that they have an alternative. So they have uh, signed the agreement with Iran last year to have an alternative road uh, passing from Arme- uh, uh, Iranian land uh, to Nakhchivan. And today they laid down the first, uh, so the work of this, uh, let's say, connectivity through Iranian road. So, I, I mean, there's no reason to be optimistic right now, but uh, there might be a chance to sign up the peace agreement. But the problem of the peace, peace agreement is that this is not a magic solution. It's not going to bring the the peace to the region. So there are many issues uh, that 
beforehand uh, normalizing relations and establishing the diplomatic uh, ties. So uh, I think uh, what worries me about not about this when and how the peace agreement is going to sign, whether the peace agreement is going to solve these issues that we both described, but whether there will be normalization of the relations with two countries and with two societies. So because the peace agreement is just a piece of paper. So... Uh, yes, but it's a piece of paper that's been a very, very long and difficult time coming, and it's still not in sight. Alessa, do you have anything to add on what it would take to get that piece of paper? You know, we had Azerbaijan setting the agenda for the topics uh, that get discussed, uh, how they get discussed, the format, who should be mediators. I don't see this changing. Uh, if Baku decides that it wants uh, to have uh, these or any other topics included to the peace deal, Armenia will have nothing else but to agree to that. If Baku decides that it, will, it prefers to go to Russia and to have it to mediate uh, uh, the, the peace deal, it will, Armenia will either have to follow or it will just face uh, uh, an increased potential for new incidents, new escalations. So in that sense, uh, Armenia, unfortunately, is left uh, uh, with the only option is to follow. Um, and uh, the West uh, is there just to give at least some hope that uh, some, some of these discussions, they can be more nuanced or there can be some more options or at least some funding to support some of these uh, ideas. Uh, but no more than that. Um, the equation stays the same. It's still Azerbaijan that is dictating the rules. So a challenging and very uncertain future. Alessia and Zawar, thank you so much for coming on to War and Peace and talking us through all of this. I think uh, you've offered really good explanations and terrific background and just a lot of, uh, a lot of important ground truth. Uh, so thank you so much. Um, listeners, I hope you found this as valuable as I have. Thank you, Olya, for inviting us. Thank you. To read more of Crisis Group's work on the situation in the South Caucasus, please check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. Crisis Group is on Twitter, X, whatever it's going to be called next week, as at Crisis Group. Alessia and Zawar are also on that platform. Alessia is at Alessia underscore V-A-R-T. And Zawar is at Zawar Shariyev. I am no longer active on that platform, but you can find me on Blue Sky and Mastodon, where I'm at Olya Olaker. I'd like to thank uh, our producer, Alex Vigorsky, and our podcast coordinator, Heiko Schab. But my biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, uh, our listeners. If you have thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't done so already. Again, you can do that on your favorite podcast platform. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. And until then, goodbye.